This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So for tonight's program, um, what I think we all are very well aware of is that there's been a tremendously rapid rise in our use of social media um, around the world. Uh, you can think about Facebook, uh, which has been in the news quite a bit lately, um, WhatsApp, Tumblr, Instagram, Twitter. These are all incredible tools for those of us who use them. Um, not all of us do, but for those who do, they're incredible tools to be in touch with other people. Um, and we use them almost, and for some people you'd argue, to run their lives. But those tools can be used in other ways. Um, that convenience of sharing with others comes with risks about how that data might be accessed by others, and sometimes for good uses and sometimes for not so good uses. That's going to be the focus of our program tonight. And our speaker is Tim Mackey, who um, has a multinational background, including connections to Japan. Um, he spent time with the World Health Organization in Switzerland. He's worked in law, political science, um, health policy, and global health. He has been interested in using social media for a good purpose, um, not to manipulate our elections, but instead to try and better understand issues that are relevant to public health. It's a fantastic use, but in doing that, as I understand it, he realized there might be some ethical challenges, which is why I convinced him to join us for our program tonight. So I want you to join me in welcoming Tim to speak tonight. Thanks very much, Mike. Mike kind of hit it on the nail as far as what we do in, in our research. One of our areas of research is looking at social media and trying to determine uh, trends and uh, things that are happening within the social media sphere that can tell us what's happening in public health. And the main uh, use case we're kind of working on right now is the opioid epidemic because it's such a uh, critical issue to kind of look at. It's in the news all the time, and it's an epidemic that's really out of control right now. So we're at the very kind of mid-stage of this epidemic, and it's likely only going to get worse. So we're going to be talking about infovalence, which is the use of social media and other forms of data to conduct what we traditionally think of as surveillance, public health surveillance. And we'll also be talking about the ethical components kind of at the end. So I'm going to be presenting our research, how breakthrough it is, how much great things it can do, and then we're going to stop at the end and say, wait a second, have we really thought about the ethics behind this, and what are the implications of that? So kind of wait for me to get into the ethics component towards the end, and then we'll have a robust discussion about it uh, in the panel session. So uh, most of you know that right now, if not all of you know, we're going through a national epidemic, which is the opioid crisis. And here are some numbers. So the first number is 91, which is the number of Americans who die every day uh, from overdose associated with either uh, heroin or uh, prescription opioids. Uh, one in four people that are prescribed opioids for long-term care or long-term pain management actually end up addicted. And then this other subset, which is 40 people die every day from overdosing from prescription opioids which is, of course, different than the 91 number because that includes illicit drug use and prescription drug use. So there's a huge portion of people that are dying from medicated use of opioids. And so this uh, graph from the CDC kind of tells the whole story. Any opioid uh, deaths are increasing pretty rapidly, but some of the interesting things in this graph that you may not notice is some of these other classes of drugs. So one is the natural and semi-synthetic opioids, the ones we kind of know about the most, oxycodone, hydrocodone, 
increasing, but not at the rate of these other synthetic opioids, which are the fentanyls. So fentanyl is this other component of the opioid crisis that is really fascinating from a research perspective, but is really troubling from a public health perspective. So here's some other stats that I think are important. This is a great series by KPBS that was done on Frontline, showing that overdose from drugs has now exceeded vehicular accident deaths. So we're kind of having this inverted curve. More people die from overdose than vehicles, and we'll see what happens to that when we have automated cars. You know, maybe it'll be even less than that. Um, that uh, cocaine is not the major killer. It's actually opioids within all of these drug classes that all types of racial demographics are impacted by the opioid epidemic. Of course, some more than others, but essentially it's touching everyone in every type of community. And that in some states, more prescriptions are issued than people in the state. So if you can imagine that for every state, there's, we normalize the data, put 100 people, some states have more than 100 prescriptions written for that 100 people. Um, so some of you may also know this opioid from the, from the standpoint of celebrities, people who have died. And so, for example, this is the, the artist known as Prince. He died from uh, an overdose of fentanyl being in his system. And, and this was one of the first deaths really associated with this counterfeit uh, fentanyl that we'll talk about in just a second. Uh, for those of you in a um, more younger demographic, this is a little peep. People have heard of him. He's an emo slash rapper. So uh, he actually also died from a combination of Xanax and uh, fentanyl that was found in his system. So even musically, you see this demographic divide where it's actually impacting different generations. And what was happening in these two cases is something that's very, very troubling, which is uh, this counterfeit opioids. So when you have this large opioid epidemic and law enforcement starts to crack down on prescribing on the illicit drug trade, then someone has to fill in the gap when it comes to kind of market uh, demand. And that's what's happened. Essentially, uh, dealers are uh, raw material providers are using fentanyl to create illicit or counterfeit opioids. So you buy something on the street that says hydrocodone or oxycodone, it actually doesn't have the active ingredient for that drug. It actually is laced with fentanyl because fentanyl is much cheaper to cut um, by the gram and it's much more potent. And if you're a counterfeit producer and you're selling to substance users, your drug has to have an impact or they're going to know about it. If you counterfeit a sugar pill, you're not going to have many substance abuser customers coming back to you. So that's why fentanyl is very interesting because it's a reaction to part of the law enforcement component, part of the prescribing component. It's introducing a new threat uh, in the public space because people need these drugs to keep their habit going. Okay? So, for example, this uh, was found by the DEA. It's actually, um, when they did laboratory analysis, it says it's oxycodone. It's printed as oxycodone, but it actually had a research-grade chemical that had never been used in humans before, uh, a synthetic fentanyl. Uh, and this is a pill press that you can buy. You can actually buy these off of Alibaba, uh, and you can print your own pills. And then, of course, you can make a lot of money. I think it's for, you know, you can make millions of dollars, basically, on a, just a few hundred grams of this stuff. And again, they're pr printing it to make it look like oxycodone so people abuse it. And then a lot of people like Prince or Little Peep may not even know that they're taking fentanyl, and they die because of that. 
Uh, and the other thing that's interesting about this epidemic is you see some of the same patterns in our youth and adolescents, which is kind of an area that I focus on within a sub-segment of our research. So if you see this uh, graph here by NIDA, it actually shows that prescription drugs or OTC drugs have overpassed illicit drug use in almost all categories, except for marijuana. That means more of our youth and adolescents are um, basically you know, abusing prescription drugs versus illicit drugs. And I'm 38 years old now, but uh, grew up in a rough area in Reno Valley when I was in middle school, uh, Riverside area. Um, so if you listen to some of the you know, hip-hop scene and all, all the music, it's a very big shift. A lot of hip-hop artists used to talk about you know, abusing cocaine, but now people talk about abusing prescription drugs in their rap lyrics. So it's, a, it's kind of a cultural shift as well to this type of form of drug abuse. So one of the people we don't talk too much about uh, in the context of the prescription opioid epidemic is Ryan Height. And he's a young man out of San Diego. He was living in San Diego with his mom. He died in February 12th, uh, 2001, after he purchased Vicodin online from an illicit online pharmacy. And we'll be coming back to him, but essentially... He was a first uh, warning shot about this other risk factor associated with illicit uh, access to drugs, and that's the Internet. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. We'll come back to him. Long story short, uh, I was a master's student. His mom came and talked to us in a master's seminar. And that's the reason why I'm here today as an academic and researching this, because she really had a passionate talk about it, and it got me interested in the subject. And, you know, 15, 10 years later, I'm still researching this topic, trying to make an impact for individuals like him and for future Ryan Hyatt's. So what we're going to talk about next is we're going to go a little bit into methods, methodology, and what we do from a research perspective. And that's the intersection between the opioid epidemic, big data, social media, and machine learning, or in another way you can call it artificial intelligence. So most of the data that we get about how what percentage of people are addicted to drugs, et cetera, is generated from survey instruments. So, for example, with kids, uh, with youth and adolescents, we give them a survey in class, and we ask them, can you please recall your last six months of drug abuse? And that's how we generate our statistics about how many people are using drugs. So the good thing about that is there's a lot of power to those studies because you're surveying a lot of, a lot of people. There's generalizability because you're collecting the data the same way. And uh, you can also do this longitudinally, so you can repeat it over and over. So, so those are some of the good things. Some of the bad things are is people may not be truthful in the survey instrument. They may have recall bias, which means they don't remember all the drugs they took. Uh, and sometimes even, you know, they may, these questions may lead people to answer in a certain way, especially about combination use. Uh, and the other thing is, is it takes a long time to compile these survey instruments. So sometimes we don't find out about trends until two years after they've already happened. Fentanyl case is an example of that. So we've generated a lot of research, a lot of papers from this, and we have these surveys, but the reality is most of us, or most of us in the traditional demographic, and especially youth and adolescents, are doing this. They could care less about paper-based approaches, surveys, etc. They're on different devices. And most of us, when we talk about social media, it's not uh, you know, monolithic. So you at your current age now might be using a particular social media platform, but as you, trans as you progress in your life cycle, you may move over to other social media channels. Also, you may have a different identity within certain social media channels. So for example, how many of you here use Facebook? If you can raise your hands. And would I be correct in saying that most of you use it for personal reasons? 
Not for professional reasons? Okay, okay, cool. Um, how many of you use Instagram? Okay, so most people in my research field say, why are you doing research on Twitter and this stuff? Nobody's using that. And that's especially when, it, we, when we talk about youth and adolescence. And they're moving into social media platforms that I'm not even aware of. So there's this huge shift between you know, the social media channels we use and demographics. Um, so another thing that we notice is, again, as you change over your life cycle, you may move over to different social media channels. A lot of people may be on Instagram when they're younger, but they move to Facebook or they mature into Facebook, et cetera. And then some people, like I said, on LinkedIn, that may be your professional identity and not associated with any personal uh, content. Okay, so the opportunity that this presents for us as researchers is that you're sharing so much data, and a lot of it we can mine and look at trends and patterns to figure out what your behavior is about. And this is essentially what Facebook got caught with. What all of these social media channels get caught with is reselling and repackaging that data and making money off of it. And of course, that's the business model. You use Facebook, and they open up the service for you so that they can resell the data in some way or use the data for other purposes. Okay? So from our standpoint, how can we get the data? How can we analyze it? And which platforms do we use? And showing that this interface between social media and opioid, the opioid epidemic is actually is occurring is this famous picture. Has anyone seen this picture before? It's been viewed by about 3 million people. And what it is is a, a bystander took a video, a Facebook Live video, so you can go on Facebook and you can live stream something. And he live streamed these two people uh, overdosing. And so it's a new thing called viral overdose, which means they're videos that become viral because they're exhibiting people uh, going through overdose. Has anyone seen the picture taken by the police where the couple is in the, in the car and then the, they're slung over and then the child's in the back? If you post that on social media, it's the same thing. It's a viral overdose. So in this case, this story has been highly politicized. One of the individuals has you know, gotten out of substance abuse, but that's not, it's not guaranteed that this will happen every single time. So you know, essentially, these two people are overdosing, and we'll get to the ethics component later on. Someone can take a video, post it, and what are the ethical reper repercussions of that? In this case, it's a good case study because one of the people ended up improving their lives, but again, that's not always going to be the case. So for us, what we actually look at mostly in our research is Twitter. And granted, not all of you may be Twitter users, but Twitter is a very, very robust source of data. And I'm going to go through some of the data elements just to kind of describe that when you tweet something, that's not all you're sharing. You're actually sharing a robust set of data that we can mine, analyze, and do lots of things with. So for those of you who are familiar with Twitter, it's a microblogging service. And it's widely used for social and even commercial uses. But essentially, it's limited to 280 characters, so you can't make a long paragraph of information. So it's relatively limited in the content. And you can use things called hashtags to curate the content. So if you hashtag opioids, it's going to hashtag, it's going to group that content with other tweets that associate with opioids. So you can kind of self-curate the content. And then you can embed images, hyperlinks, et cetera, to things that you want to see, like an image, et cetera. So that is the content of the tweet itself. That's what you're communicating through the content. But actually, behind every tweet is the metadata associated with the user who tweeted that. And there, we can find out all this other information about you. Your user ID, when you tweeted it for longitudinal analysis, your location, if you're geolocated, which means you 
clicked on your mobile phone that says, I'm allowing you to see my location? If, if you do that, we can get your GPS coordinates, and that's going to be tracked with your content. Uh, information about you yourself that you self-report, so your location, your gender, etc. Um, the number of followers, so we can see how many people follow you, how many people retweet you. That has to do with your relationships. It could be your inner circle of friends. It could be people that you don't know, but it indicates some relationship and whether your tweet was favorited. So this is the right side here. This is all the data we can collect from one single tweet. And from that, we can build a few things. We can figure out what you're talking about, and we can also build profiles on you. Okay? So we have uh, early, uh, when I partnered with my first uh, co-investigator, who's now left for Japan, uh, we developed a process where we used a machine learning classifier, essentially uh, artificial intelligence, to take a large number of tweets that had keywords associated with opioid drugs and try to figure out what people were talking about. It was just a big grab of what people were talking about in the conversation of opioids. And we used a kind of traditional machine learning uh, classifier where we took about 10% of the tweets we collected, we hand-coded them with humans, and then we used that to train a machine classifier that then coded the rest of the data set, and then we compared for accuracy. Um, I won't get too much in the weeds of it, but I want you to have that information so you can compare to what we do later on. And what we found were things like this. So I'm not going to play this video. Um, and uh, by the way, I forgot to do my disclaimer. There is some explicit stuff in some of these slides. So <laughs> it's a little rated R, I guess you could say. Um, if you play the video, though, it's this young man, this individual, who says in his tweet, I want to try Xanax. He uploads a video, and he's showing off the pills. He's got slurred speech. He's high. And he's basically, so from a, the context of surveillance, this is very good evidence that someone is actually abusing drugs especially compared to a survey instrument where someone reports they're using drugs. This is actually, I mean, I'm pretty confident this guy's using a Xanax and he's abusing. Um, this is a picture of just drug dealers and people showing off the pills that they're talking about. But the interesting thing here, it talks a lot about the different um, polydrug abuse, which means people are not just using one drug, but they're using combination of drugs. So Little Peep, I talked about him before. He was on Xanax and fentanyl at the same time. So that increases your risk because, of course, there's a combination of those drugs going on. And we see other things like this. This is a guy that's an aspiring rap artist. He's, he's uh, rapping about Xanax, but it's not the signal we want. This is what we call noise. It's not data that we consider relevant to behavior, but it still gets picked up by my, our machine learning algorithm. So we're going to have to filter through this process. We see other things like this is a nutraceutical company advertising their product as a Xanax substitute. So this is kind of a weird thing. Maybe some people want to abuse Xanax and they're not comfortable with buying the actual Xanax product, but they're comfortable with buying a nutritional supplement. Uh, and then we see other things like this, which is a tweet that links to an online pharmacy that links to another site that then links to the website that actually sells controlled substances direct to the consumer with no prescription. Okay, and then if you look at the forensic analysis behind this, you find out that the marketing affiliate, the, this in, intermediate site, is located in Barbados, and the, the final site is located in Russia. So this is an example of how diversion occurs in the drug supply chain because you have illicit online pharmacies that can sell directly to users and substance users, et cetera. So now we're going to get into a little bit more of the research, talk about the Internet and opioids and how that is a dangerous combination. So going back to Ryan Haidt, 2001, he dies uh, from buying prescription opioids online. His mom, passionate, she was a nurse. 
uh, goes to Capitol Hill, uh, knocks doors down, stays in the elevators at Capitol Hill, and actually gets a federal law passed um, that prohibits the sale of controlled substances online. It's called the Ryan Hyde Act. You can look it up if you're interested. Named after him. But today, it's estimated about 35,000 online pharmacies operate at any given time. And that 96% of those are actually operating illegally. So even though we have this law, it's very hard to stem this type of access because a lot of online pharmacies are not located in the U.S. If you try to shut down one, they just reappear. You can create a website at any time and any place. So it's really hard to police this activity. So most online pharmacies, fake online pharmacies, look something like this. One, they're very well uh, you know, developed, so they got good graphics, good web, web design, etc. A lot of them say they're Canadian pharmacies because U.S. consumers think that a Canadian pharmacy is safer than a Russian pharmacy, maybe. <laughs> but a lot of times they're not actually located in Canada. If you look at their IP address and those things, they're actually located in another country. Um, a lot of times they will sell all types of products. Um, and the interesting thing f- for anyone who is... Uh, Using ED drugs, I presume everyone knows what an ED drug is, Cialis, Viagra, okay? Um, They sell in combination. So this is Cialis and Viagra, which generally you're never prescribed two of the same therapeutic class at the same time. But it's something you see in a lot of e-commerce, like, oh, let's package two consumer products together. So they use these consumer arguments, selling arguments, to sell their products. The other thing you'll see is if you go to the fact, it actually doesn't require prescription. Sometimes they'll just ask you to fill in a medical questionnaire. Uh, and then they'll justify uh, prescribing you the drug for that. And then they also do in multiple languages, and they also do on mobile. And so about three years ago, no, no, it's been a while, about five years ago, I wanted to understand how this dynamic worked from a real detailed perspective. So we did this study where we created our own online pharmacy ad, and we posted it on Facebook and Twitter, and back then it was MySpace, so that's a long time ago. Uh, and we wanted to see how many cl- people click through our site. And so it never landed on an actual online pharmacy, because I wouldn't be here. I'd be in some federal pen- penitentiary, which was never my, my, uh, my option there. And we wanted to see how much traffic would come, how many people would click on the, the, the advertisements. And we also wanted to see if they would ever be taken down by Facebook, etc. So the first thing we found out was that they were never taken down. The only one that got taken down was Google+, but not many people use Google+. So... Uh, and then the other thing we found out is that we got very little traffic. And the reason why, it's a very competitive environment. Like if you want to be an online pharmacy, you have to be like a business. You have to do multi-strategy marketing. So a lot of these online pharmacies market their products and their services all over the place, and that includes social media. So, for example, this is a Facebook post for a Canadian online pharmacy. This is a Twitter a tweet for an online pharmacy, and this is an online pharmacy that has the social media links embedded within. So if you buy from them, you can share on Twitter that you bought from an illegal online pharmacy, which is cool. Okay? So knowing that, we wanted to understand it even a little bit better, and going back to this issue of trying to really um, figure out what was going on in this specific area of illicit drug diversion. As I mentioned, the first study, we looked at all types of stuff, right? Behavior, nutraceuticals, everything. In the second study, we looked very specifically at just illicit online pharmacies. And what we developed was a machine learning algorithm that automatically detects 
tweets that are just associated with illicit online pharmacies. And we do this through an unsupervised machine classifier, which essentially means there's very little human interaction, which means it can be uh, automated quite quickly. And what it essentially does is we take all the tweets at the same time, and we group them into topic models, and then based upon the topic models, we're able to determine what that group of tweets is talking about. So for example, it says FDA children approves 11 young. We know that that's not relevant to our research question because that's about an FDA approval of a drug that's associated with an opioid. Um, There's some other ones that are more explicit. I'll let you use your imagination for those. Um, But these other um, word topic models, such as order, online, quality, discount, prescription, we know that all the tweets that are grouping within that topic model are related to the online pharmacies. So what we do is we use this topic model, we identify the ones we want, we pull them out, and then we do analysis on it after that. So we take about 2 million tweets, and we're able to filter it down to maybe 1,000. And then from there, we can hand code the tweets and figure out what's going on. And from there, uh, we found some of these other results. So this is a typical result we find. This is an online pharmacy that sells controlled substances. And it says they're in stock, so you can go and get it if you're interested. Um, And it says FDA approved. And I can tell you, this is not an FDA approved website. (laughs) So you see things like this. This is a very traditional online pharmacy, you know, something you would probably find in a search. You could even Google search it. You'd probably find it, something like that. The reason why they do a lot of social media use is because it's, it's a little easier to market on social media than it is on search, because search you have to pay. If anyone here owns or operates a website, you know you have to do search engine optimization, search engine marketing. It can be pretty expensive. So a lot of these online pharmacies do it through social media because it's just cheaper. And then you see things like this. So we picked this one up during a codathon that we did. We'll talk about in a second. This is just a guy, uh, just a drug dealer. And he's using Twitter to become a digital drug dealer. That's all there is to it. So you can see he's, one, he's posting a picture of the medicine, the prescription drugs, so he can prove to you that he has it. Second, he says, we buy, and then he's using hashtags to tell you, hey, curate the content. And then he says, if you're interested, email me on my Gmail account or text me. Or, you know, use a WhatsApp app, you know, something like that. So basically putting his information out there so that you can contact him and hopefully, you know, buy drugs from him on the street level. And then we see things that are a little bit more concerning. Um, So this is an example of a site we picked up. And if you'll notice, there are some controlled substances on the top, but there's also meth there as well. So you see a lot of these sites are doing things that are going beyond just prescription opioids and prescription drugs, but they're going into the illicit drug space. And if you notice at the top there, you guys are probably know about what Bitcoin is, right? It's a cryptocurrency. It's relatively harder to trace than currency itself. And Ether is also another form of cryptocurrency. So this is an example of a website that is using cryptocurrencies to try to pay for illicit product. Okay? And so what we can do then after that is do some web forensic network analysis where we look at the location of the websites in relation to um, their registered address, their IP address, et cetera. So a number of the ones that we looked at were actually located in Pakistan. And does anyone know what Pakistan's good at producing? Opium, yes. So there's been actually a number of Pakistani nationals that have been prosecuted by the Department of Justice for trying to sell Uh, controlled substances online. So if you are the major supplier, you can do two things. You can sell in wholesale, or you can also sell in wholesale and also sell retail. So they're doing two things there, okay? So a lot of these sites are from questionable locations, uh, and again, that's another way to evaluate the risk of the website itself. 
And also, it's illegal to import drugs in the United States. With, there's a little narrow exception, but generally it's illegal to import drugs from other countries. And so we can look at the IP addresses versus their registrant addresses and try to build network structures around that. And the idea there is, is if you know, the server is located in the U.S., then the FDA can come in and shut down the server a lot easier. And then efficient, essentially the website is being shut down as well. And then some of the other things we're looking at, just to give you a little bit of a glimpse of the future, is uh, beyond the illicit online pharmacy thing, we're also looking at behavior. So one of the things that's very interesting within the substance abuse community is transition and behavior. So this tweet is kind of a gold standard tweet. It says, people getting hooked on prescription drugs like Xanax, lean on Oxy and Perks, per- Percocet. But they say, he says, can't get high off of that no more. He's got to level up to more expensive and it's too expensive. So he's basically saying prescription drugs are becoming more expensive than illicit drugs. And he says, I've got to level up to heroin cocaine. So that, what that means is he's transitioning in behavior because of two factors. One, because he can't get high off it anymore. But two, because it's too expensive. And so heroin has different risks. Of course, it's an opioid as well. But when you inject heroin, you're introducing yourself to a lot of other public health concerns, HIV, you know, hepatitis C, et cetera. So those are some of the things we look for because we want to understand how people are transitioning in behavior. And then there's these other things like there's synthetic drugs, herbal, uh, you know, spice, things like that, where a lot of regulators aren't just caught up on the synthetic side. So we look for that as well. And, of course, we also look for fentanyl. So we've done a few studies on looking specifically at fentanyl and how it's being sold online because a lot of consumers are not actively looking for fentanyl. They're looking for other prescription opioids, and they're getting fentanyl instead that's counterfeit. Okay, so uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about translating this research into action, then we're going to talk lastly about ethics and then end there with, you know, a segue into the panel discussion. So, one, what do researchers do mostly? We write papers. How many of you read academic papers on a weekly basis, except for Ruby and except for, (laughs) geez, this this audience is too educated. I wanted to lower response rate. Most of you, or most people, do not read academic papers. They wait for academic papers to be translated into a medium that is, one, understandable, and two, that is impactful. It's not just understandability. It's impactfulness. Okay? Um, And so a lot of researchers don't involve themselves in the translational component. Okay? And so we do a good job at this first part here, which is we write a lot of papers. So we've written a lot of papers. And we write these abstracts so that other researchers will read our papers so they don't have to read the whole paper. But we never take the step of translating it formally to a more lay audience. So we've written four papers on this in a number of different journals, some computer science, some uh, um, public health focused. And then another thing that we do as researchers is we wait for news media to translate our articles for us or call us or interview us, et cetera. So here we have a piece that covered our, one of our research pieces in Scientific American, talking about AI scans Twitter for signs of opioid abuse. This one's my favorite here. Our study came out just about when Trump declared um, opioids as a public health emergency, and it says Trump declares opioids a public health emergency, how robots can help. <laughs> it's not robots, it's AI, but that's close enough. And then I think it says here, it says some researchers say the answer resides in Twitter or something like that. I I didn't really say that, but I'll take it. I'll take any media I can get, okay? So that's one of the ways we translate. We wait for people to do things. And another way that the U.S. government is actually recognizing that, hey, we've got to push these guys out of their comfort zone a little bit. 
is they're doing new initiatives to try to deal with opioids differently than other research questions. So I was at an academic conference, of course, talking to other academics, and I got a call. I was in Atlanta, and I got a call from CDC, and they said, hey, there's a codathon going on in D.C. Do you want to be a part of it? And I was like, sure, why not? And they said, we read your paper. We think it's great. Will you participate in this codathon? And I was like, I guess, yeah, sure, why not? CDC calls me. I'm not going to say no to anybody. Uh, so we ended up to D.C., and this uh, Rashmi's on the left. She was our CDC contact, and we participated in a 48-hour codathon, where we essentially kind of developed the solution, took a new set of data, analyzed it, and presented on it. And this is where we were one of nine finalists. So we didn't get the final prize, but we were close. Um, a codathon is when you get a bunch of computer programmers or people with computer skills. They get a question, they get some data, and then they have 48 hours to solve it. And they present at the end their findings. And most teams have different problems they're trying to solve. So that's kind of it's a general approach to it. But there's lots of different approaches. But most times it involves some, le- uh, uh, some layer of data and then some type of competition problem. Um, so this was the first codathon that HHS had ever done before, which was it's pretty behind, you know, considering there's codathons going on all the time. And these two young people from IBM just joined our team. So there's people IBM just sends so that they can get credit for being on a codathon, which was helpful. It was helpful because they were they were pretty good. So that was another way we translated. And then so we and then part of this you know codathon was actually you know get beyond the papers. Talk about a solution that FDA or someone can use, and that's what we designed. We designed this web application uh, concept that you know a regulator could use and click through and try to figure out what's going on with illicit drug sales. So uh, after this, we also won a challenge award, and now the U.S. government, your great taxpayer money, thank you very much, is giving us a little bit of funding to do a startup company. And so they've said, we're not going to pay the university. We're going to pay you through a startup company, and that's the only way you're going to get your money. And instead of doing research, you need to build something that will help this problem. So that's the stage we're in now. I'm not really a startup guy, to be honest, but uh, that's how I'm going to get the money. So I'm going to have to do something that goes a little bit beyond the research, translating into real action. And that's something, at least in the opioid space, the NIH and the U.S. government and the FDA is trying to do very, very, very hard. Okay? So I've explained to you kind of the great things about this Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. But we have to stop real quickly and ask: Are there any ethical considerations associated with this? And the answer is absolutely. So most of this research, if not all of it, is possible because your data is not protected. And to be honest, as an honest broker, that helps me because I can get access to your data and I don't have to worry about informed consenting you and giving you all this disclosure, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I can just mine that data. It's all public. Mind you, all of this data is being self-reported by the user, and it's out in the wild. The only difference is we're using analytical tools to kind of filter through it and then report it. Okay? So one of the reasons why we used our methodology was we wanted to collect a large volume of data. The reality is, is that Twitter and a lot of these you know, social media platforms make it hard for researchers to collect the data. Why? Because they want to sell it to us. And they want to sell it to everybody else. So we use cloud computing to kind of make it look like there were 20 of us collecting from the same data source so that we wouldn't be limited out on our data collection. So we kind of worked around that using cloud computing. 
and we asked Twitter for the data, by the way, uh, through a company called Genip. And the cost for a million tweets was $22,000. So, and they actually asked us a lot of questions. So one, I didn't have that money. I didn't have $22,000 for tweets, so I wasn't going to buy it. Um, and this is the quote I got from Adam. Oh, I was supposed to probably, shit, probably anonymize his name, but anyway. Uh, so the data request took three weeks, and maybe it's not something Twitter wants to be publicized too much because they asked us a million questions. They're like, how are you going to use the data? What are you going to talk about? What are you, what's your research question? And I was like, opioid abuse. And they're like, eh. You know, so they're not actually, they're, they say they're not in the business of censorship, but from a research perspective and disclosing data and providing data, you'd be surprised. They're not interested in publicizing how Twitter is facilitating drug abuse. I think that's probably not the thing they want to talk to their investors about, which they're mostly uh, in the IPO phase. I mean, they're post-IPO. Okay? And, of course, this links into things that are going on today, which is Facebook and analytical, uh, Cambridge Analytica, et cetera. So even from an IRB perspective, and if you're curious about IRB, Ruby's here in the back uh, with UCSD, is a lot, of UCS, a lot of academic institutions don't know how to deal with people like us. First, we tell them we're collecting public data, so it shouldn't be protected. Okay? And then it's not PHI because it's not associated with you know, health care reimbursement, so we don't want to treat it as health information. And from the standpoint of research, we want it exempted. So we don't want any protect. Well, we don't want not any protection, but we want limited protections on how we use the data, um, not necessarily de-identifying, et cetera. So every university is kind of struggling with this right now: how to deal with social media and how to protect the public appropriately, but also give researchers the latitude to figure out what to do with the data. So some of the things we might need to consider is in this digital era: do we need a new ethical paradigm when it comes to digital information? So this is something that the AMA has recognized for a long period of time, that a code of ethics needs to be a, you know, adaptable and flexible. And you know, the fact is 59% of people are now searching for health information online. So health is a critical component of what we do in these digital platforms. And this is just a graph of what we think of e-health, which is kind of in these areas that are really clinically focused. This is a definition from a... A colleague of mine, Gunther, who's very, you know, involved in e-health. But if you read the definition of e-health ethics, primarily evaluates the impact of digital technology on patient-physician interactions, that's very clinically focused. We're not even close to addressing some of the issues that are happening in more of the public space. So some of the things we need to consider are, does ethics address, you know, kind of these suspect practices from the provider perspective, the consumer perspective, and industry? And from that perspective, do we need to change these kind of dynamics between how a physician and a provider react, how a business and a patient react? So if someone is illegally marketing a nutraceutical that's supposed to be a Xanax substitute, do they have an ethical you know, uh, obligation to tell that you know, consumer that they're not actually a, you know, the drug that they're saying? Um, and then do actual do users have a responsibility to each other? Because a lot of these users are misrepresenting information, um, and they're spreading that across their networks. So it's not just the physician anymore. It's not just the physician-patient relationship, which we think about in traditional clinical ethics. It's these other relationships we're bridging because the digital environment is breaking down barriers that we've never seen before. So... 
I leave you with that. Uh, of course, this research is not possible without a whole bunch of people. I'm just the guy who's lucky enough to come here and talk about it. Um, but uh, I've had a number of co-investigators and a number of people that are really smart. We're a very interdisciplinary team. My postdoc is a machine learning PhD. She's got a PhD in machine learning. So she does all the code, and I do all the talking. <laughs> so, um, so there's a lot of people involved, and the Alliance for Safe Online Pharmacies is actually the one that funded the initial part of this study. They're a 501c3. Uh, and now, you know, today, actually, if you check on CNN, Scott Goldlib, who is the commissioner of the FDA, just announced that we have to do something to stop these illicit online sales of opioids via social media and online. So FDA is thinking about this. CDC is thinking about this. So we're hitting a critical mass where this is really important. So that's it. I'll end with there, and uh, we can get into the panel. Thanks. I don't know if it was you, but where did the idea come from that you might, one might use social media to address public health challenges. Who, where does this originate? Yeah, so it's a very interesting area. It's a, like I mentioned in, in the first slide, it's called infovalence. And it's just we can look at all types of data points to ask all types of public health questions. The area that it really started off with most is infectious diseases. So has anyone heard of Google flu here? So Google flu is just how many people are searching for flu-like terms, symptoms, etc., and if a lot of people are searching for those terms, then we can presume that there's a flu outbreak occurring there because a lot of people don't present in hospitals and a lot of people don't get laboratory-confirmed you know, diagnosis of flu or any type of subtype. So a lot of infectious disease modeling has, has really driven the field. And also another field that's been really pioneering in this space is tobacco control. So looking at tobacco use, behavior, and marketing through social media. So those are the two big areas. And then this opioid space, that's pretty, not, it's pretty nascent. Like we're, there's a few of us there, but not too many of us. Yeah, so part of the driving reason for my question is to recognize just how rapidly this idea is developing. My sense is that I first heard about this maybe three or four years ago. I don't know. How far back does this idea go? Yeah, I mean, the first use of the concept is 2001. Okay. So, you know, it's, it emerges because the technology emerges. And uh, we're all already talking about infovalence 2.0, 3.0, you know, whatever. Um, but the, the overall point is, is that, and this is, I'm, I'm more, from a technologist perspective, I'm kind of in that space as well, is no single data point is enough. In order to really understand something, you need to have multiple data features. And if they all triangulate around one risk issue, then you have more resolution that that risk is actually occurring. So this is, infovalence is just another form of surveillance that you layer on top of what we do through survey instruments, through national health statistics, et cetera. Okay, and so now a more specific question for this kind of work, and you pretty much asked the question, so if you have public data, public information, should it be protected? And I know that, I, I'm not a lawyer, but my understanding is that in certain domains, People say, under this circumstance, you have a right to expect privacy. Under this circumstance, you don't. So um, do you know of any data about public perceptions of whether data that they are sharing on social media should in some way be protected? Has the public been asked that question? Yeah, I'm not sure of any quantitative studies, but I think the overall perception is that users feel that they have a right to privacy when legally they do not. So when you sign up for your terms and conditions in terms of use, has anyone heard of a contract by adhesion? If you ever go to a, 
go to like a, you know, a water slide and they make you sign that release of liability if you die or do you get decapitated or something, which is not funny. I mean, a kid actually got decapitated. It's a very terrible story. That release of liability is garbage. It's not valid. It's called a contract by adhesion. You have to sign it in order to get services. It's kind of the same thing with social media channels. Like if you say no, they'll just reroute you until you say yes, you know, to your terms and conditions. You don't have any room to negotiate. So again, users have the perception that they should have some form of privacy when actually they don't. And we just haven't made a push against that. So um, to answer the question, I think, again, uh, there are some legal frameworks like GDPR, like there's, there's a general data privacy right uh, rule that's coming out of Europe. There's things that are maturing in the health space. We have HIPAA that protects certain data. But in general, what we constitute as consumer information has very little protection. And a lot of that's the stuff we see on social media. Okay, so in this domain, I don't know if uh, Ruby, who's from UCSD, will want to comment, but I mean, it seems to me that an IRB, an institutional review board that reviews human subject studies, is interested in protecting the people who participate in research. And some of those circumstances are very explicit. Many of you have been in studies like this where somebody will talk to you and they're going to interview you, they're going to use some intervention with you, and you will have to go through an informed consent process. You're working with human subjects. They're participants in your studies, unknowing participants. And I I know that it's for a good cause. (laughs) I know it's for a good cause, but um, I can't think of a bright line that says... um, that there's a region here where people um, should not have to be, um, not sh- should not have tried informed consent. You know, there's, there's a, there's a, you know, I'm not an expert on this, and, and Ruby, you're welcome to come to the microphone if you want to correct me on this, but, um, but it, it seems to me that if, that if you could make the case, and it, you probably try to make this case, that you aren't doing anything that would put your subjects at risk beyond the risk that they would normally have based on their activities, then maybe the Human Research Protections Program would say, it's okay, we're going to exempt you from worrying about getting informed consent from these participants. So let how, me, do you, how did that work? Yeah, I'll, I'll counter. I'll do the counter argument first. So why should I, as a researcher, who am trying to do something for a public good, why should I have more requirements to protect the public than the data provider that's collecting that data and can resell it any way they want? So that's kind of, it's not a cop-out, but it's, it's a real question to have. Like, if they can use the data, resell it to Russia, and, in, in, and maybe impact the election, why should I have to provide you informed consent to make sure that you're being protected? So that's one question a lot of us ask. But the second question is practical consideration. So... I mentioned that ad we put up, you know, the ad we created. Um, if, so what I wanted to do was I wanted to have people click on the ad, and it sent them to, like, a public announcement that said, hey, you know what? Online pharmacies are dangerous. You probably shouldn't be looking at this. <laughs> Guess what? I can't do that because that's an intervention. If I do that, then every single person that clicks on my ad, guess what I have to do? I have to inform consent them and say, hey, by the way, you're part of a study. This ad is not real. There are some risks associated with the ad that you probably want to know about. Uh, we don't sell anything, but just in case, you know, your behavior could be distressing. So I had to put nothing there. Which one's more ethical? To inform the consumer about a risk or to say nothing because we're worried about IRB? So I think 
you've got to flip this ethics component on its head a little bit. You really have to look pragmatically at each situation. And, you know, again, Ruby's a great uh, resource here. There is Camille's group out of UCSD, the core group. They're asking researchers these very questions, saying, pragmatically, what do you need to do to actually help the, the participant? And what can the ethics office do to kind of change and fit around what you're trying to do while also protecting the individual user? My overall view is if you're tweeting about drug abuse and you're putting that in public, sure, you might be intoxicated, you might be high, something like that, but there is some culpability that the user has to have when making that information public. Yeah, so actually I would say this isn't so much turning the ethics on its head as actually this is really at the core of the ethics question we're asking. Um, you're trying to balance uh, risks and benefits. Yeah. And you know, I, I think at this point our audience has heard enough of this to, to be able to consider what do you prefer? Do you think, it, it, you know, you're not going to change public policy by your vote, but it might actually cause Tim to think about his research differently depending on what kind of response we get. So do you think that the public health benefit outweighs the need to inform people that you might, your information is being used by somebody? Does that public health benefit outweigh that so how many would say yes? Okay, I'm seeing about 10, 12 hands. How many would say no? I would question the question. Oh, okay, question the question? Okay, and okay, how many would question my question? <laughs> okay, and how many would say no? Okay, one. And then what I find is in many of my classes, a lot of people don't have a hand to raise. <laughs> but... Um, What's that? It depends. It depends. It, it always does depend, and that's the problem with the, the, with the real world. But in the real world, a review board is going to be asked these questions, and you, you have to have oh, these conversations at UCSD. We've UCSD's gone through ARB for sure. <laughs> and, and they're going to take a case-by-case, case, and yeah. they have to then make a decision. And so, um, so I, I think at least we have a majority vote here, based on those who voted, that you can go ahead with your studies. Great. That's, that's good. Um, and, and also, it is important for us to get feedback from the public because, one, I think ethics is dynamic. So if you are a drug dealer and you are trying to make a living and you posted your information online and I found you and I reported you on a paper and some police officer uses that to arrest you, I'd be pretty mad about my privacy, to be honest. And that's, that's a legitimate reason to worry about privacy. If you're a non-affiliated party and you are part of the public and you're not worried, what happens if that's your family member and that person gets caught by you know, our algorithm? And there's no protections to say we can't disclose that information or we disclose it incorrectly and it's discoverable by law enforcement. So it really is, this informed consent component is more dynamic than just a standard population. This is really focused on you know, what the interests are of that individual user. And that's where I think one of the things that really is the focus of a lot of this overall national discussion is should users own their data and have more responsibility of that data? So not one, should they have the rights to that data and how it's disclosed? And two, if they do, then they're responsible for how it's being used or not being used. So I think that's, that's a discussion that is ongoing Probably not going anywhere anytime soon, but that's probably where it's going towards. So could social media tracking strategies be used to find mental illness or signs of suicide or abusive situations? If so, 
who would intervene with the at-risk person? And while you're answering it, you may as well contrast that with a public health level intervention. So yeah. the distinction. So. So, uh, so absolutely. So CDC has actually talked about us with this use case because our methodology can really be applied to a lot of different problems. So you can find signal or um, trends in people tweeting about depression, substance abuse, and also suicide. But the thing that gets a little scary is we're in the business of not just looking for tweets that say someone might be suicidal. We're in the business of looking at all the metadata behind every user that says that and seeing if there's commonalities in the metadata. Age, demographics, your location. And then once, you get, once we get your location, we can overlay data about your socioeconomic demographics, your voting district maybe. You know? And when we get longitudinal data, we can look at trends over time as well. So we can actually kind of map out what would be a more likely profile of someone that may be suicidal based upon these tendencies. The problem is, is if we do an intervention because we're rating it on risk, then we may be stigmatizing that individual just for talking about depression. And in reality, if we're identifying something but we don't really have good treatment of mental health in this country, are we really helping the problem or are we more stigmatizing it and pushing people underground so they can't even talk about it on social media? So that's a very difficult question. I think most of it, what we do at that component is we're still in the business of aggregation. We don't report individual behavior. We don't target individual users. And if we do, it's some sort of de-identification. We don't want to get into the business of tagging individuals. We want to aggregate that information and say, hey, these are the trends we see in suicide but not looking at the intervention component. That would be a more structured approach. And in the social media space, that's really about enrolling cohorts in social media platforms and tracking their behavior and then doing targeted interventions instead. Okay. So actually, and, and maybe I, mean, I, I was trying to get for our program somebody, I haven't succeeded in doing that yet, um, that would be interested in talking about something along those lines. And again, I talked to you about this at the break, but... Um, Increasingly, we're seeing um, instances where um, people will take weapons into situations where they will kill many people. And a number of those times, we have been told that there were warning signs in advance. And so um, there are possibilities that one could use a combination of information on social media and other sources that might allow you to develop a profile of risk. And... Um, from my perspective, what I look at whenever I see a question like this is, is knowing that when you do something like that, you are going to have a certain degree of false positives where you will say somebody is a serious and real risk when they really aren't, and a certain degree of false negatives where you will miss something. But knowing that there will be some degree of that risk of making a mistake um, there is a certain attractiveness to saying maybe we should have some sort of threat assessment algorithm so we could intervene if we, and we're willing to take those risks. So thoughts on, on that direction? Is it ever achievable? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So a lot of, if you're, if you're a researcher, by the way, here, and don't go to NIH, go to DARPA. And that's the money, that's where the money is. DARPA's in, DARPA's, you know, defense, DOD. And they spend a lot of money doing exactly this for terrorism-related activities. You know, which accounts are more related to terrorism and could relate to a threat? Um, They're not doing the opioid stuff. They're in that space. The problem is is that a lot of times 
uh, this gets also into the ethics thing. Machine learning is just the data you feed in to an AI. So if we feed in a whole bunch of terrorists from Saudi Arabia, guess what it's going to tell you when you put it across all the other demographics? It's going to tell you, like, Saudis are all the terrorists. So a lot of times you have to be really careful about, you know, how you use machine learning because the data set that you use itself can bias the classifier, which can then repeat the biasing because it's just operating on the same pattern recognition it saw before. So what we say in these kind of very sensitive areas is, again, you need multiple data features to identify where there might be risk. And then in that context, an intervention may be appropriate, especially for like a mass shooting or things like that. Um, or it may just you know, provide some indication to law enforcement that they need to follow up on some activity. Um, but rarely are we going to be able to pinpoint an individual like who may be a mass shooter because each individual is so dynamic in their behavior, their, the platforms that they use, and the way that they communicate. So real quickly, Instagram, you post an image, that's part of your communication, and then the text is a secondary communication component. That's different than Twitter, and it's even different than Facebook. So it's very hard to isolate behavior even just on one kind of social media platform. So I think we're very early when it comes to really identifying that type of risk. I think we should probably <laughs> do more research. I hate to say that. <laughs> but <laughs> we're far away from that. We're not at that level of precision yet. I want to thank you for a really interesting presentation. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.